Welcome to Handels Banking Insights. I'm Sonia Rothwell. From time to time at Handels Banking, we conduct research on issues that we think will interest our clients and investors and businesses more broadly. We recently published research into quantitative tightening, which the Bank of England began last year. Now, although it's quite a technical topic, we think it's something you ought to know about because it'll probably affect the financial choices that you make. Fortunately, I'm joined by our expert economics team, James Sproul and Daniel Marnie, who carried out the research. Now, if I turn to you first, James, can you just explain a bit about what quantitative tightening is? Well, quantitative tightening, of course, is following on from quantitative easing. And if we just cast our minds back uh, back to the global financial crisis, at that time, the primary tool that central banks used to steer the economy was interest rates. But they needed more tools at that point. So they invented the whole idea of quantitative easing, which was the, the central banks going into the market and buying up various assets. In the UK's case, largely gilts, but they, they bought some corporate bonds as well. What we're, they were aiming to do was to push the price of those assets, those long-term assets, up and push the yields down. So keeping the long-term borrowing cost for businesses down. And that the idea there was, of course, to uh, help those businesses with their financing and make get, get through the, the, the real upset that we saw in 2008, 2009, et cetera, et cetera. What was less anticipated was that they kept it going. They kept it going for a very, very long time. And they didn't really take much opportunity to reduce the amount of holdings. And of course, if you know, you look back all the way to the Keynesian economics, you know, one wants to spend in the bad times, but save in the good times. So there was a really a, an imperative in, in many ways. And in fact, I was on, on record as being one of the commentators saying they should be rolling this back quite some time ago. But that didn't really happen. It is happening now. And so that's what we're calling quantitative tightening. It is the banks reducing the stock of assets they get. Now, those stocks of assets are actually pretty big. Uh, in the UK's case, it's about 40% of our GDP. So 895 billion pounds of assets on what the Bank of England calls their Asset Purchase Program, the APP. 875 billion pounds of that is gilts. Only 20 billion is, is corporate bonds. Uh, the US has, has a, a similar amount, about 38% of their GDP. The Eurozone has even more, uh, over 70% of their GDP in terms of the amount of assets that the central bank has bought. In all cases, in the US and the UK, we're starting to, to reduce those. And the Eurozone, they're looking at ways that might be doing some of that reduction over the course of 2023. And what we did in this report was we started to say, what is the impact of that going to be for businesses, for interest rates, for the, the monetary policy overall over the course of 2023 and in, further into the future? Thanks for that, James. Daniel, what are the impacts of quantitative easing and quantitative tightening then? Well, there are some differences in the impacts depending on when it was conducted and also the scale. So I think what seems to be fairly clear is that QE has been quite an effective tool at times of market distress. So I think you saw that after the financial crisis. James was talking about some of the rationale of implementing it in terms of depressing long-term interest rates. And if you look at the UK, for example, the first tranche of QE depressed medium to long-term interest rates by about 100 basis points. So successful on that front. You saw that in the other markets as well. And you also saw a, a reduction of credit spreads in the euro area when they did QE. So quite effective at times of market distress potentially not as effective in achieving some of its goals when there isn't market distress. I think that did come out. And I think one of the other areas we did explore is some of the contentious aspects of QE. Uh, so one is uh, the impact on inflating asset prices. That's been quite controversial. And also the inflationary impact. Now, 
inflation didn't come through that much after the financial crisis. But we argue in the paper that the latest tranche may have actually been more inflationary. And we cite a few reasons for that. First, simply the the scale of QE is much larger. So the Bank of England's balance sheet doubled as a percent of GDP. Incidentally, you saw the same in the Fed and the ECB. And also the QE was coinciding with other issues. So obviously there were supply chain shocks. So I think in terms of the inflationary impact, the the QE that we've seen at the moment uh, has potentially been more inflationary. So if QE has been inflationary, I am guessing that its opposite quantitative tightening is disinflationary. Is that the case? Absolutely, that's the case. And in terms of the rationale of why QT has been implemented now, I think there are three reasons. One is, as you say, acts as a disinflationary break alongside rising interest rates. And what we try and do in this report is try and maybe give some idea about how much of a disinflationary break it could be. Another important reason is that QE has been an important tool for central banks, but for it to be able to be used in future, it's got to return to normal at some point. So that's another reason. And also, as James was saying earlier, QT is potentially important because it may take a bit of froth out of asset prices, which have become quite inflated compared to fundamentals. It sounds like QE and QT are actually quite experimental then. Yes. One of the things the Bank of England said is we have lots of tools to to, um, uh, control monetary policy and to influence monetary policy at the time. And um, uh, financial markets and financial commentators say, so please tell us about these tools. And um, this this was probably the big one. And it did have that big impact. Uh, And um, and I think the Bank of England lived up to what they were talking about in in terms of bringing in the big guns. And we saw, for instance, um, you know, Mario Draghi and the European Union saying, you know, we we will do whatever it takes. This was part of whatever it took. And so clearly these were these were big issues. But unwinding it, as Daniel has been saying, is also a big deal. And how we do that and the the necessity of doing that, um, because we, we don't want to have a situation in which QE is... Um, you know, forever going up, it does need to be wound back so that it becomes an effective tool in the longer term. Um, it's not just something you add on to. Um, uh, it is something that, you know, you, uh, as I say, good times you bring it down, bad times it goes up again. I don't think that central banks anywhere in the world are going to be not using QE as a long-term tool. I think it's it's entered their armory. They will be using it in, in future times of stress. Um, and, and that's a good thing. In terms of the uncertainties, uh, there is quite a lot of literature about QE and the impact that's had, but less so about QT, primarily because there isn't actually that much experience to draw on. So um, we mentioned this in the report, but the US Federal Reserve is probably one of the only central banks that has tried this before. Um, and there have been problems previously. So in 2013, the so-called taper tantrum, I mean, all that was doing was suggesting tapering asset purchases. And financial markets responded very negatively to that. Now, when they actually did QT in 2017, 2019, uh, it wasn't such a bad reaction. Uh, But because there's only been a few precedents and sometimes uh, not very welcome precedents, uh, there are these concerns about the sorts of market disturbances QT may have. So, yes, if you remember when the the Federal Reserve started that that to to taper, the taper tantrum, it wasn't actually anything more than simply reducing the pace at which they were going to be purchasing those assets. And the markets took that badly. Um, but the, the Federal Reserve um, learned a lesson, and that lesson was quite clearly communicate what you're doing, set your strategy out, get people on side for it all. It's not that they're objecting to the principle. They just need to be clear as to what you're doing and how you're going to be doing it.
I would say that central banks are actually doing this quite responsibly. And I'll just go through what, what the three kind of major central banks that we've looked at are doing. So the Federal Reserve has, of course, started its uh, QT programme. It's actually doing it at a more rapid pace than its previous QT programme in 2017-2019. But it's been well communicated. And obviously, the economy is at a more advanced stage. So I think the, the US uh, can take that. The ECB has yet to start, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, they've only proposed 15 billion euros per month from March, and that's a, of a nine trillion pound uh, balance sheet. Now, the Bank of England is actually not just doing passive QT, so that's waiting for assets to mature in the portfolio and then not uh, replacing them. They're actually doing active QT, so uh, actively selling some of their bonds. Now, I think Sometimes this has been interpreted to say, oh, look, the Bank of England is going much faster than other central banks. I think what we found in the report is actually all it's to do with is the maturity profile of the assets in the Bank of England's balance sheet. Uh, so because it's much more long dated, if you just waited for passive QT, you'd have to wait until July this year to do any more QT. So it's all about smoothing the gaps. If you look at the plans for balance sheet reduction in proportionate terms, I think the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England is roughly going at the same rate. The potential impact is something that is really, really interesting and I know that you've looked into. Um, if the Bank of England unwinds its balance sheet, what could happen to the prices of, of other assets? Well, what's already happening, and not just within um, the UK and the Bank of England, but we've seen this in the US and developed economies around the world, uh, the Eurozone, etc., is that gilt yields, bond yields are all rising. So the the long-term government bond yields have all been rising. In some cases, of course, they were negative. Um, Eurozone bond yields were were slightly negative and they're now positive, and they're going up. How far are they going to go up? Where's the the natural rate? Is it sort of 3%? Uh, Are they going to go back to something like 5%, which we saw a number of years ago? I don't think it'll be as high as 5 But if it were something like 3%, that is a very, very natural level. The question, of course, then becomes one of, you know, a lot of things price themselves off the gilt or the treasury or the ECB yield. And so, for instance, one of the things that we look at here in Handelsbank quite a lot is um, property and and various property classes. Typically, commercial property yields a a level above gilt yields the moment it's below. And so we expect, over time, property yields to go up. Now, there's two ways property yields can go up. Either rents can go up or the asset value falls. And we're thinking probably going to see a bit of both coming through. And so, yes, I do think there's some, probably some upward pressure on rents coming through. We've seen that, for instance, in some of the, the um, housing uh, stats. But we're also seeing capital values fall. And so we'll see all of those yields adjust to the new reality of where does the risk-free rate, the, the, the gilt, the, the bund, the oat, the treasury, you know, where, where do they go? Uh, and if they are, say, 3%, which is long-term plausible rate, um, you will see, for instance, properties yielding 4 4.5%. Well, there's implications for all of that. It's really interesting, isn't it, that there are these consequences that people might not be aware of. And another consequence of having bonds looking more attractive as assets is that investors might want to look at moving their money from perhaps the, the stock market. Is that what could happen, Daniel? It could, and it might be useful to sort of illustrate what we think this potential impact QT could have in terms of equivalent interest rates and what that could have on on bond yields, as you say. So the Federal Reserve have actually done quite detailed analysis of what they think the impact of QT might be. And they think if there's a 30% balance sheet fall of the Federal Reserve, that could be the equivalent of 0.5% interest rate uh, increase. Now, 
what we did is we looked at the Bank of England, uh, we looked at the planned pathway of QT, and by mid-2025, gilts in the asset purchase programme uh, would probably fall by roughly about 30% as well. So we think it's reasonable to say that by t- mid-2025, QT in the UK could mean equivalent of 0.5% interest rate increase, and you expect that to be reflected in bond yields. Now, I think the interesting dynamic here is I think this is very uncertain. So uh, the US Federal Reserve did that research last June when there was much less market distress, much less market uncertainty. If we saw scenarios where bond markets and sovereign bond markets across the Western world are in a state of distress, you could actually see QT having a much bigger impact on financial conditions. Um, so I think that's why this is important uh, you know, for, for people listening to say, look, Yes, you know, 0.5% uh, interest rate increase is small compared to the interest rate increases we've seen since uh, last year, but it could potentially be uh, quite a bit more than that. So I think it's something we need to keep an eye on. And one of the ways that QE and indeed QT can play out is the so-called portfolio rebalancing impact. So when you change the risk profile of different assets, you can see shifts from different asset classes. And yes, if if the yield becomes more attractive on government bonds, you could see a move from one asset class into government bonds. I'd be interested to hear what you both think about whether there could be problems with with QT. Well, Sonia, we've actually already had problems delivering QT uh, in this country. Um, if you remember following the mini-budget in the autumn, uh, there was a problem in the pension fund and the long-dated uh, gilt market. What happened there is that Active QT was meant to start, it ended up having to be postponed for a month. And then the Bank of England did some temporary QE. Uh, and I think uh, now, obviously, uh, the Bank of England has managed to release its position and they've managed to sell all those back into the market. And QT did eventually manage to start. But I think it's illustrative of some of the problems you could see across different markets where QT programmes could be uh, interrupted. The QE market has another couple of, of issues as well. One is that for quite quite a period of time, uh, actually QE has been uh, a good way for the Bank of England to make money in terms of the interest paid has been lower than, than that on the gilt. That's reversed. And because it's reversed, the Bank of England is now going to be losing money. And of course, the government needs to recapitalize that bank. And that's something that's going to be seen within the Eurozone and others as well. Uh, and the, the fact that um, we've seen, of course, bond yields rising does mean the cost of all that debt that has been run up here in the UK, but also within the Eurozone, within the US as well, that's rising. And we've got lots and lots of calls on the public purse. And so it's going to become increasingly uncomfortable. It doesn't matter whether you're a government or whether you're a private business. If you've got a lot of debt and things turn down, that debt becomes very expensive. And obviously, in the case of you know some some uh, businesses, that can be eventually fatal. And I don't expect it to be fatal for any governments. Money will be tight and people will feel that. Thank you to James and Daniel for explaining what we said at the outset. It was a very, very technical subject, but I hope that you found it interesting and useful to hear the background to it. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Handel's Bank and Insights. If you like what you've heard, then please rate us on the app where you're listening because it helps other people find us. We look forward to joining you again next Monday for our regular edition of Handel's Bank and Insights. Bye.